Well, we have been going through a six-week series. In fact, we're in the middle of a six-week sermon series on what we're calling biblical stewardship. In fact, it's been titled Someone Else's Money. And we've been very fortunate to have heard three strong sermons laying a solid biblical foundation for stewardship. We heard a message out of Matthew chapter 6, which... If I can quickly recap, it simply focused on where our true treasure is and also dealt with anxiety and gave some just great instruction on a cure for anxiety. And then we've also heard from Matthew chapter 25, the importance of investing our our money, our time, our expertise, what the scriptures refer to there as talents. And then just a week ago here in West Lynn, we heard a message out of Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and chapter 6, showing the contrast between living our lives foolishly versus living by wisdom in what's called the fear of the Lord. And as that was defined in that message, the fear of the Lord is living life for an audience of one. Living life dominated by finances, dominated by anything other than God in our lives, is, is a vapor the writer of Ecclesiastes said. And that message taught us that what is required of us is that our hearts get recalibrated. So those were the three kind of foundational messages in this six-week series on stewardship. Beginning today and running the next two weeks, we're going to look at a, a few practical things that grow out of that. In fact, today's message is on tithing. Nothing quite empties a church like tithing. If we had a marquee here at uh, New Life Westland, we don't, but if we did and I was to put up the sermon title, A Cure for Stingy Stewardship, we would probably have the same turnout as I'm experiencing here today. So I'd invite you now, if you would, to turn on your Bibles. Uh, What a difference a preposition makes, right? Um, Fifty years ago when I started preaching and teaching God's Word, I would have said, turn in your Bibles and you may want to do that as well. But I'd really advise you to have a, have a Bible open, uh, either digitally or in paper. Have it in front of you. Uh, I'd also encourage you to have a notepad ready or an iPad or something to write with, maybe a pen or a pencil. The, the beauty of this sermon being videotaped is that you can actually stop it and you can catch or rewind it and catch maybe something that was said rather quickly. I want to read for you Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. Now, if you have a talk sheet in front of you, which those are also available, it's probably going to have printed on there verses 7 through 12. But I've purposely backed up one verse to verse 6. And along with this videotape, there'll be a few slides as well. And there will be slides that have the the Scripture here. But let me just read it for us now. Beginning in verse 6, Malachi chapter 3. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, well, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, well, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? 
You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. You may not have ever read that passage or heard that passage read. It's tucked into the uh, near the end of the very last book in the Old Testament. But by the time we get through the next several minutes, hopefully you'll have a much clearer understanding of what God is actually saying here to His people. So the, the context is important, and I'd like to just share the context very briefly. First of all, uh, the prophet Malachi, his name literally means messenger. And... The message that he's sharing is broken up into half a dozen, maybe even seven different parts. There's a series of disputes that God is raising to his people. He'll raise a question, they'll come back with a a repeat question, and then he'll answer that. I want us to also understand uh, the historical context of this. Remember, Judah had been taken captive by the Babylonians, and then that moved into captivity in the Persian Empire as well. And that had happened as a result of their repeated uh, rebellion and disobedience and idolatry, going against the many promises and the many commandments that God had given to them. By the time we get to Malachi's prophecy, though, here at the end of the Old Testament, uh, about a hundred years has transpired since the first wave of Jewish exiles have been allowed to go back into the Promised Land, back into Jerusalem. And so there were successive waves of exiles returning under different leaders, Zerubbabel and then Ezra and then Nehemiah. They rebuilt the temple. They then rebuilt the wall. They restored the worship life. They restored civic life, even government life. Yet at the same time, the people were incredibly poor. Their worship had turned from a relationship with God into sort of a a ritual thing that they practiced occasionally. And as a result of that, the prophecy of Malachi, particularly the first two chapters that precede today's passage, um, give us a a long uh, grocery list of very negative things that, that had occurred as a result of turning this relationship with God into mere ritual. They had doubted God's love. They despised God's character. They even defiled His worship, bringing blemished sacrifices and sacrifices that weren't worthy to bring before God. They abused their prayer life. They were apathetic and bored with their worship of God. Their leaders were unfaithful and indifferent to the truth of God's Word. And as a result of all of that, they ended up treating each other treacherously or as the text says, faithlessly. They broke trust in their relationships with each other. And not just with their neighbors, but even in their marriages. They broke their marriage covenants. Uh, Men were casting their Jewish brides to the side with their children and were running after foreign women. Divorce was commonplace. Employers were defrauding employees. 
They even exploited widows and orphans and foreigners in order to try to get that much far ahead. And that leads us to today's passage, verses 6 through 12 of chapter 3. In today's passage, um, we see that also their, their um, experience of worship to God in the giving of their tithes and offerings, they had become stingy in their stewardship of the resources God had entrusted to them. Now, mind you, the economy was depressed. These returning exiles were very poor. And so they were tempted to shortchange God of the required tithes and offerings that were to be brought in for the support of worship in the land. Well, Malachi sees this not just in a legalistic sense, but he sees this as a symptom of a major spiritual problem. In fact, their failure of stewardship really equates to a failure of loyalty to God, a failure of trust in God, a failure of the heart to put God first in their lives. Essentially, this is God's call to His people to repentance. He's calling them to a change of thinking, a change of attitude, and ultimately a change of behavior. So, I would say this, in Malachi's expose on tithing, we discover some basic truths about biblical stewardship. And we also, at the same time, discover a cure, a cure for stingy stewardship. Now, I'm going to give six specific aspects of this, six truths that emerge out of this passage. And so, like I said, you can jot these down or you may want to stop the video and and write it down before you move on to the next one. But let's go back and look at the passage. Let's look again at verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The very first truth that we discover here about biblical stewardship is this. Stewardship is actually shaped by God's character. I, the Lord, do not change. Now, theologians love to use big terms to describe simple concepts. Uh, You may have heard of the word immutability which simply means that God does not change. God is not like us. God is God and we are not. We are different. And we might change. We might vacillate, but God does not. For those of you that have a a bent towards Reformed theology, the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it this way. God is spirit whose being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. It's immutable. God's character does not change. So therefore, biblical stewardship is shaped by that reality. Now let's look at verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. This This is a historic pattern that's been going on for not just decades, but generations. The people that have been back in the land of promise as exiles who've returned to Jerusalem and Judea, and they've been there almost 100 years now, they're repeating the things that their forefathers had done that sent them into captivity to begin with. So God says in verse 7, Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, well, how shall we do that? How shall we return? The second truth 
that I believe can be found in this passage about biblical stewardship is this. Repentance is central to stewardship. This term, return to me, literally means to turn back. It literally means to change your thinking, to change your attitudes, and to change your behavior. It's as if you're going in one direction and you're turning around and going the opposite way. Return to me, God says, or in a sense, repent from what you've been doing. We were reminded a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 6 that where our treasure is, that's where our heart will be also. Again, we see that what Malachi is is teaching here, what actually God is teaching through Malachi, is that this is a heart matter. And so repentance of the heart, a changing of the heart, is central to an understanding of biblical stewardship. And as we learned, living by wisdom, living in the fear of the Lord, requires a recalibration. I love that term. A recalibration of the heart as well. In verse 8, we see a third truth about biblical stewardship. Verse 8 reads, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, Well, how have we robbed you? And God's answer is, In your tithes and contributions. Here's the truth. Tithing, as it's described in Scripture, which is Uh, described most detailed in the Old Testament. Tithing is the floor, not the ceiling, for biblical stewardship. Tithing is the floor, not the ceiling, for biblical stewardship. In fact, tithing is an old idea. In Genesis chapter 14, verse 20, Abraham meets a, a strange character, Melchizedek, or Melchizedek, depending on how you want to pronounce that, And he gives him tithes. He gives him 10% of of some plunder. He gives it to Melchizedek. And so, Genesis 14.20, that predates Moses. That predates the law that was given to Moses. So, tithing, this concept, had been around a long time. But when God gives the Old Testament law through Moses, He gives specific details and definitions for what this is. Literally, the word tithe... And, and again, I'm purposely trying to be distinct with that word. I, I can remember as a young child growing up in a Baptist church, hearing them talking about tithes and offerings and fully expecting the men in the church to take the tithes that they had wrapped around their necks off and putting it in some sort of an offering plate. I didn't understand what that was all about, tithes and offerings. Well, it's tithe, T-I-T-H-E. A tithe is nothing other than a tenth, one-tenth, ten percent of the produce of the land, of the grain, the fruit, the animals, their money. And it was set aside, it was consecrated, and then it was set apart for special purposes. Many examples could be given from the Old Testament, but I'll just reference two. Leviticus chapter 27 and verse 30 is is a key verse describing this tithe. It reads, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy or consecrated, set apart, It is holy to the Lord. And then Moses in Deuteronomy, as he's repeating the law on the plains of Moab, he says this in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 through 23. Each year you are to set aside a tenth of all the produce grown in your fields. So that, here's the purpose, so that you will always learn to fear the Lord 
your God. You, you can see it even in the law itself, in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, in the actual statements of the law. This isn't about some external thing that we're just supposed to do behaviorally. No, this is about something that's going on in the heart. It's something that's going to change our perspective on who God is, who we are, and how we're to live in relationship with Him. Well, unfortunately, the attitude of the folks in Malachi's day seems more like this. Well, how little can I give and still keep God happy? Does that sound familiar? It's as if when we talk about tithes, we, talk, we think maybe in terms of, well, I'm just going to kind of give a 10% tip over here based on how good God's been treating me. Something we would do maybe in a restaurant. That's not the point of tithing. In fact, it's interesting. In the Old Testament law, it went far beyond just 10%. In fact, there were actually three required tithes that are described in the Old Testament. The one that Malachi is referencing here was to financially support the priests. Those who were not allowed to work at other jobs so that they could give their full time and attention to serving the, the worship life of God's people. It was, uh, it, it was given first to the Levites, and then it was passed on. They themselves, the Levites, would give a tenth of the proceeds to the priests. But then there was a second tithe that was given to help support the work of the temple, to celebrate uh, annual sacred feasts. And then every third year, the people would give another 10% to support the needs of the poor and needy. Well, if you add those together, these mandatory tithes actually equaled about 27% of household income. And if you wanted to give online, and you might be thinking, what are you talking about? Well, there was a provision made for if you didn't want to carry your animals with you to Jerusalem, to the temple, you could convert it into cash. That's similar to what we do in terms of giving online. If you wanted to do that, you had to add, you had to add another 20% to that. So we're not just talking here about uh, 10% of what I own that I'm going to give back to God. No. We'll see in a minute. Everything belongs to God. And so the, the point of tithing is to, to bring us into alignment with who we are in relationship with Him. The tithe was recognized as belonging to God. It is God's tithe, not my tithe. The Bible rarely speaks of giving a tithe. Uh, rather, it speaks of us presenting or even paying tithes. The tithe was explicit. It was objective. It was expected. Period. Now, contributions or offerings, your Bible might say, uh, on the other hand, were, are given from, from the heart when motivated by God's grace on top of the required tithe. In the Old Testament, there were special portions of the sacrifices that were reserved for the priests and their families. And then there were voluntary gifts that were given occasionally on special occasions for very special purposes. In a sense, Malachi's uh, presentation of this in the last book of the Old Testament shows God's final prophetic thoughts on tithing. Malachi is the last book that was written. 
after Malachi was written, there's, there's a period of about 400 years of relative prophetic silence. God is not communicating through the prophets anymore until right up at the birth of Jesus. And during that 400 years, unfortunately, the Jewish religious leaders had concocted all sorts of tithing techniques. This, in fact, is what um, Jesus himself addresses in Luke chapter 11. Now, if you have a talk sheet in front of you, you'll notice that that also is a passage for this message. So I want to quickly just show you a few things there and reference that and then tie it back into Malachi. So take your Bible, turn in your Bible or turn on your Bible to Luke chapter 11 and look at verses 39 to 42. And I want to give you, the again, the, the quick context for that. Uh, Jesus has been teaching. Jesus has been invited to go and have um, lunch with a Pharisee. And as they're reclining at table, the Pharisee is astonished to, to observe some things. And then Jesus launches into this pretty in-your-face, up-front, accusatory uh, statement or two to this Pharisee. Let's read that. Verses 39-42. through 42. So the Lord says to him, the Pharisee, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not, that's Jesus talking there, by the way, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within. I would underline that. Those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb. Just the small minutia, that the different things that they had added in their oral tradition to the Old Testament law. But you neglect justice and the love of God. These you have ought to have done without neglecting the others. Jesus makes it very clear here that, once again, this is a heart matter. In fact, Jesus rebukes his Pharisee host because a person's heart is what concerns God the most. Let's go back to Malachi. Malachi notes that the failure uh, in, in, uh, in giving is actually a sign of spiritual decline. In fact, it may be a sign that these people have never truly tasted God's grace. And as I say that, and as we look at this passage I'm also saying that about ourselves. If we've never truly tasted God's grace, never really embraced the reality of God's steadfast love and His grace for us, then we're going to have a challenge with what I'm talking about here today. It's a sign that something might be wrong in the heart. The great reformer Martin Luther put it this way, there are three conversions a person needs to experience. The conversion of the head, the conversion of the heart, and the conversion of the pocketbook. Well stated. Let's move to verse 9. And in verse 9, we read, You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. In fact, the whole nation of you are involved in this. The fourth truth about biblical stewardship found in verse 9 here is that stewardship is based on God's ownership. The term rob is a rare word used in Scripture, but it it means uh, to take forcibly something from someone. 
Well, David makes it very clear in Psalm 24.1 that the, the earth is the Lord's. The, the, the fullness thereof. The world and all those who dwell therein. It's God who owns everything. I don't own my income and give Him a, a portion back as a sort of tip for His services to me. No, God owns everything. In fact, in verses 10 and 11, when uh, God begins to describe the promises that He's going to make to His people, if in fact they follow through with this instruction, He says this, I'm going to open up the windows of heaven. In other words, God controls the elements. He also says, I'll rebuke the devourer. Your vine will not fail. God controls the insects. God controls the plants. God is still on His throne. Even in, a, in the midst of where we are today, in the midst of this global pandemic, God is still on the throne. And this message, when I volunteered to, to uh, preach this message months ago, actually, I had no idea that we would be experiencing what we're experiencing now. But the truths of, of this prophecy of Malachi are so applicable to where we're at today. God is still on the throne. God still owns everything. And so we pray to Him. We pray to Him that He'll bring healing quickly. And we recognize that He is the one that, that is in control of our lives, our situations. And that's what our stewardship is based on. It's based on the fact that God owns everything. In fact, in Leviticus 25, God told the people, look, the land is mine. You're just strangers here. You're sojourners with me in the land that belongs to me. And they stumbled over that. They were having a difficult time. They didn't have a clear understanding that God, in fact, owned everything. Well, also in verse 9, we see a, a consequence for disobedience. That's, that's what I would number as the, the fifth truth. He says, God says, you are cursed with a curse. There are certain consequences for disobeying the clear word of, of, of truth that God has given to us. God's people are under a curse. One about which they had received repeated warnings, as had their forefathers from generation to generation. And the people are holding on to things, whether it's their produce or their income or their animals. So in order to draw the people back to Himself, God says, I, I can take these things away. They don't belong to you. I own everything. But He's going to do that only so that they will turn back from things and in fact hang on to Him and Him alone. Well, this same principle is found in Proverbs 11, 24 and 25. Proverbs 11, 24 and 25. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Consequences for disobedience. Now, you might be sitting there going, well, wait a minute. Uh, you're preaching out of the Old Testament here, Tim, and uh, there's just like so much doom and gloom and there's so much legalism. I, I, don't, I thought we lived in a different dispensation, a different time. Uh, don't we live under grace? Well, yes, absolutely we do. And fortunately, Paul reminds us in Galatians 3 that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, everyone who was hung on a, on a tree is cursed the, the blessing that we enjoy by God's grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ is that 
we're no longer under that curse. Yet, mind you, God's character has not changed. God is still in charge of everything. God still owns everything. And He wants us to align our hearts, just as He wanted these people in the Old Testament, to align their hearts with Him. And He was giving them a very simple, easy way to do that. To simply uh, acknowledge who He was, that He owned everything, and then to tithe and give offerings back to Him to perpetuate the worship of Him in that nation. So there are consequences. There were consequences for disobedience and there are consequences today because God does not change. But I'm grateful, we're grateful that ultimately we stand, when we stand before a holy God as uh, men and women, young people, boys and girls who profess allegiance to Jesus, um, that curse has been removed. We, the, the curse of sin is taken away. His blood has been poured out and atones for us or literally covers us. When God looks at us, that's what He sees. He doesn't see our sin. The final truth I want to pull out of here, actually it, it, just, it just really emerges, it just bubbles to the surface here, is found in the beginning of verse 10. Malachi writes, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. This is actually God speaking through Malachi. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. Here's the sixth truth. There are promises for obedience. God begins this verse uh, with a command. And then He says, I'm giving you this command so that you might test me. Seems like an odd thing for God to be suggesting. Well, this literally means to prove Him. To discover that He is faithful. In fact, the term itself means to evaluate the dependability of something, or in this case, someone. In other words, give God the opportunity to prove His faithfulness in response to our obedience. Remember, these former exiles who have returned to their homeland, they're poor. They're barely scratching by. And they were questioning whether or not they could afford to obey God in this matter of tithing, in this matter of stewardship. Let's be candid. Does that feel familiar? For many of us, weeks ago, hearing this message, we would say, absolutely, I'm struggling right now. I just lost a job, or I'm about to lose a job, or we're adding a child to our family, or whatever. The rent just went up. But now all of us are faced with the unknown and not quite sure what is this global pandemic going to do to our savings, to our investments, to our home, to our job, to our current situation. There are promises that God makes for obedience to what He's asking us to do. He's asking us to steward all of our resources, as, as we've heard in the previous sermons, previous messages on this. And specifically today, out of Malachi, he's asking us to steward the financial resources that he has entrusted to us as well. And then he says um, in verses uh, 10 through 12, If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. 
And then notice verse 12. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. These promises that God is repeating here are linked back to multiple promises found throughout the first five books of the Old Testament, particularly uh, kind of in a capstone in, in Deuteronomy chapter 28. There are promises of abundance. I will pour down for you a blessing, the New American Standard says, until it overflows. That reminds me, this isn't just an Old Testament concept that reminds me of something Jesus said in the New Testament. Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says this, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure. Press down. Yet you have the, the imagery here, the picture of having a, a lap full and a, a maybe a, a big bag full of grain that is given to you. It's a good measure. It's pressed down. It's shaken together. It's, in fact, it's running over. And it'll be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Those are Jesus' words. Those aren't my words. Back in Malachi, there's promises of not only abundance, but there's promises of protection. God says, I'm going to rebuke the devourer. Um, I'm going to make sure that your, uh, the vines in your field will not fail to bear. And then, I love verse 12 because there's also, it's not just about us, there's promises of witness to the world. Look at verse 12 again. All nations will call you blessed, for you'll be a land of delight. In other words, when they're obedient, when God's people are obedient to what God is asking them to do, and that applies to us as well, then the world looks on and says, hmm, there's something going on here. There's something different about these people. And you know, folks, we have an opportunity right now, an unprecedented opportunity. I've never experienced anything, anything like this in my near seven decades of life. An unprecedented opportunity to be a blessing to people and to turn people's attention to God as a result of our attitudes, as a result of our behavior as a result of our obedience to God. I don't know if you recognize the name R.G. Letourneau. He lived in the first half of the 20th century. But he invented massive earth-moving machines. I mean, I'm talking massive, the kind that you would use to build an interstate. And they had a distinctive chartreuse color, kind of a greenish-yellow color to them. He earned a fortune through his inventions. Yet he lived on 10%. He gave away 90% of his fortune, 90% of his income, his entire adult life. But the money just kept coming in faster and faster and faster than he could give it away. In fact, uh, the, he was even able to start a university, which is still in existence today, Laterno University in Longview, Texas. In fact, I've had a chance to be there. I, I taught, a, taught a course there once. Um, it's a wonderful school. Letourneau uh, repeatedly would make this statement. I shovel it out and God shovels it back, but God has a bigger shovel. Don't you love that? It reminds me of the, uh, the humorous little illustration about the, the young boy who goes to the store with his mother. Uh, the shop owner that they go to is a kind older gentleman and he passes across the counter a large jar of suckers. And he invites the little boy to help himself to a handful. Well, uncharacteristically, the little boy kind of holds back. And his mother's kind of looking at him kind of strangely. And in the meantime, the shop owner, he reaches in and he pulls out a handful for him, hands it to the boy, and they leave. Well, when outside, the boy's mother asked, 
why he had suddenly become so shy and why he wouldn't take a handful of suckers when offered. And the boy replied, because his hand is much bigger than mine. I love that. Someone else's money, uh, the sermon series title, it's exactly what we're talking about today. And the cure for stingy stewardship, stewardship is shaped by God's character. Repentance is central to stewardship. Tithing is the floor, but not the ceiling for stewardship. Stewardship is based on God's ownership. There are consequences for disobedience, but there are also promises for obedience. The next two weeks, we're going to have the privilege of hearing what the Apostle Paul has to say about stewardship in one of his letters. And I think that will be very, very instructive. And it will be built on this Old Testament foundation that we've been talking about out of the book of Malachi today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we come to You humbly, um, yet directly in the name of Jesus, because of the work of Jesus, because of the sacrifice, Lord Jesus, that You made on our behalf. Thank You again so much, Lord Jesus, for choosing to come and live among us and then to live just like us and then, in fact, to die for us. Thank You also that by the power of the Holy Spirit You were raised again. So I pray to You, Holy Spirit, as well, that You would take the truth of Your Word out of Malachi's prophecy and that You would just drive it home, drive it deep into our hearts, that You would bring about life change, heart change, as a result of being confronted with the truth of Your Word. And again, Father, we pray that You would be glorified through us, especially during this this strange time in which we live. Lord, that You would be Uh, would be drawing attention to Yourself as a result of our attitudes, our behaviors. Lord, we do pray for healing. We do pray for people in our church, people in our neighborhoods, people in our state, our country, around the world. We pray that You might bring healing speedily. By Your grace, by Your mercy, Lord, that You would cause this uh, virus to be uh, quashed and put away and that people's lives would be spared, Lord. That's in Your hands. And we pray earnestly that You would bring about healing quickly. But in the meantime, Lord, help us to continue to steward the resources You've entrusted to us and be glorified through that as well. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.